The Lord be with you. A reading from the Holy Gospel according to Matthew. Jesus began to reproach the towns where most of his mighty deeds had been done, since they had not repented. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty deeds done in your midst had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would long ago have repented in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon on the day of judgment than for you. And as for you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will go down to the netherworld. For if the mighty deeds done in your midst had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom on the day of judgment than for you. The Gospel of the Lord. As much as we may not like to, we do well to pay very close attention to these difficult words of the Lord in our gospel today. And note the framework of it. This criticism that the Lord makes is precisely a criticism of the people who should know him best. That would imply folks like us. He criticizes the people of the towns where he has spent the most time, where he has done most of his dramatic works, where he has done most of his preaching. In fact, the last town, Capernaum, is the town where he lived in his adult life. It is clearly identified in the gospel as the place where Jesus made his home. And so imagine this, the Lord saying to those who live in the same town that he has been living in, oh, we have a problem. And then note the setting. We who gather in this place, where the Lord is regularly present in our tabernacle, we who attend church with some regularity, are we not then in some way like those who should know Jesus best? And what then do these words mean for us? Individually, but then also collectively. Because the Lord is expressing a certain frustration, not merely over individual hardness of heart, individual mediocrity, but over the hardness of heart and the mediocrity of the community, of the town. And he speaks then on both of these levels. And in speaking this way, he uses contrasting examples. He uses the great pagan cities of Tyre and Sidon, and he uses that proverbial example of self-destructive wickedness 
Sodom, whose wickedness was so great, fire from heaven rained down upon it. And in contrasting these cities with the people who should know him best, the Lord takes off the table that easy way of giving ourselves credit for a shallow, even non-existent goodness that our hearts often like to fall into. Well, at least I'm not as bad as, and we make the comparison. I'm not the abortionist. I am not the drug dealer. I am not the one who has done all of these wicked things. The implication being, I must be okay. And notice that the Lord is well aware. Capernaum is not Sodom. No, you're not those guys. Chorazim and Bethsaida are not Tyre and Sidon. Jesus is well aware of that. He says, no, you're not those towns. So what? Because if those towns, misguided as they were, if Sodom, wallowing in wickedness to the extent that it was, had a glimpse of what you've gotten to see every day, that glimpse would have changed them. And so you're right. You're not those guys. Because wicked as they were, they'd have responded. The interesting thing is, what about you who say, I'm not that wicked, and that means I don't have to respond? This is the Lord's frustration. He's not really impressed if we're not great sinners. Okay, we're mediocre at that. What he really wants is visible goodness recognizable goodness, an actual response. Because when I say at least I'm not that bad, note the implication. I don't have to repent. I don't have to change. There's nothing I need to confess or be reconciled, or at least it's only minor stuff. And know what the Lord said. If these other places had seen what you've been able to see, Hearts would have been moved. Hearts would desire to change. And they would repent. And they would turn from the wickedness, however great it was, for the sake of a chance at mercy. And here mercy lives among you. Here mercy walks among you. Here goodness stands with you every day and you don't get up and you don't move. Note the frustration in the Lord's voice. The issue is not, the Lord says, that you are tremendously wicked people. It's you're tremendously non-responsive people. And that is a bigger problem. That is a bigger problem. That complacency which settles over the believer's heart. That complacency which says, I can always get to this tomorrow. That complacency which says, I'm doing okay, this teaching is meant for somebody else. And 
And the Lord says, no, if I say it at all, it's meant for everybody and everybody includes you. Isn't it interesting? We grow up so conditioned to think that God's greatest frustration is with the worst of behaviors. And yet oftentimes the worst of behaviors are the result of hearts that are tragically misguided. When the Lord's greatest frustration time and time again in the scriptures is the issue of the non-responsiveness of the heart to whom he has been speaking. The non-responsiveness of the people to whom he has in fact revealed himself. The fact that the people of God have a historic tendency of taking the great things of God for granted and lightly. And so we have the treasure of his presence, but we treat it as a thing that can be set aside. We have the treasure of his teaching but we'd rather listen to somebody else. We have the beauty of the way he has marked out for us to live, but we believe we could do better by marking our own way. And so given all of this wealth and all of this richness that the Lord expects us to value and to use and to respond to, he stands and like that parent who has sacrificed and labored to give a child the most wonderful things only to see that they're set aside and neglected. Woe to you, the Lord says, and to the town where he lives in. Oh, don't you think you're going to have a better judgment day than Sodom will? And imagine that. This city, proverbial for its wickedness, and the Lord says to those who haven't done those things, you're actually going to have a harder time when you stand before my throne. Because it's not merely a matter of you didn't do those things. It's the issue is, what did you do with the good that I gave you? What did you do with the call that I gave you? How did you value and respond to the love that I revealed to you? Because you guys got that, and the people of Sodom didn't. What a, uh, what a remarkably powerful statement that is. And it's a statement that when we recognize this, this way we can be curiously non-responsive to the Lord, that the incident that we have now from the beginning of the book of Exodus takes on a different light and a different character. Often when we think of the figure of Moses and the great events that took place in Egypt, where do our minds go? Right to the great events. The ten plagues, the ten commandments, the crossing of the Red Sea, the golden calf, all of the dramatic things. And yet, this tendency to focus first on the dramatic is in a certain level that misguided tendency that the Lord is critiquing here. Because without attending to the quiet and the humble foundation upon which the dramatic is built, 
one can't appreciate the full goodness of the dramatic. And so we begin with this scene of Moses placed in a basket and released onto the waters of the Nile River. And why? Because his parents could not save him from the death-dealing, oppressive power of the world. The order had been given to kill all male Hebrew children. Moses is born. His family keeps him as long as they can, but they can no longer keep him safe. And so note how the story of the Exodus begins. The inability of the people to save themselves. The inability of the people to preserve their own lives. And so because they cannot save themselves and the parents cannot save that child, they have to turn elsewhere. But note this beginning. Note this beginning. We can't save him. We can't save him. There's a certain helplessness with which the story of the Exodus begins, not merely a collective helplessness, but now the helplessness of the people crystallized in the infant in the basket. And the infant that the world and the people cannot save, what happens with him? He's placed and surrendered to the water. How interesting that is. Placed on the water, that one through whom God will part the waters of the Red Sea so many years later, is first placed on the water. This little basket in miniature, how like the Ark of Noah. Likewise, on the waters. Because Noah couldn't save himself or his family from the wickedness of the world either but trusting himself to the care of God in his little boat on the water, life would be saved. And so here it is, this little life, so fragile, so powerless, in its little basket of a boat on the water. How marvelous that is. Note how already in sign, before Moses is able to do a thing on his own except cry, already something great is being prefigured. And so trusted into the care of God, symbolized by that little basket on the water, this life is saved. And Pharaoh's daughter pulls him out, names him, Moses, which means I have drawn him from the waters. That is a name that all Christians rightly could bear as well. Because where does Christian life begin? But when we are drawn out of the waters of the baptismal font. We too cannot save ourselves. We too have to be surrendered into the merciful care of Almighty God. And that great movement of surrender begins with the sacrament of baptism by which we are brought to the water, surrendered into the water, and drawn out of the water. And note, 
Just as Moses couldn't save himself, no Christian can baptize himself. You know, there, there is no ritual of baptism where the guy takes the water and pours it over his own head. And so, no, one must be brought, one must be immersed, and one must be pulled out of the water. Because it's not something we can do for ourselves. It is something that must be done and in miniature here at the beginning of the book of Exodus, what do we see? Something wonderful, something great. This vulnerable, fragile life that can't do a thing to save itself. Drawn out of the water. And it is the one who is drawn out of the water who will grow into a certain greatness due to his relationship with God. But it is a growth that will happen in time. Because what do we see as the story continues? We see young adult Moses, conscious of his double status, a member of Pharaoh's household, but a Hebrew. And he encounters this incident of one of his fellow Hebrews being beaten viciously. And Moses responds violently. He strikes the Egyptian, he beats the Egyptian, he kills the Egyptian. He responds with the same destructive violence of the oppressive world that he needed to be saved from. And what do we see very quickly? That response goes nowhere. It produces a dead man, and that's all it does. It produces no freedom. It produces, at best, a moment's relief. But the very next day, what do we see? His own people are afflicted by that same unthinking violence. It is not merely Egypt that afflicts Israel. Israel afflicts itself. The Hebrews beat one another, as if the beatings from the Egyptians aren't enough. And isn't this, too, intrinsic to the human heart? We are all frustrated by how life can beat us down, and yet in the middle of all of that, we are brilliant in finding all of these other ways of beating each other up on a regular basis, of afflicting ourselves. And Moses sees here the tragedy of all of this and the futility of that way. When his brother Hebrew says, now is it my turn to die? Are you going to kill me now? now? Note the lesson Moses has to learn here. Freedom doesn't come this way. Goodness doesn't come this way. The strength of my arm, whatever it can move in this world, can't move that. And Moses realizes that, all, that the violence that he has surrendered himself to has suddenly placed him at risk. Because the world plays that game better than Moses ever will. The world plays the game of violence better than any of us ever will. And so he must flee. But what does he learn here? The lesson that was hidden in the basket. You can't save yourself. Your arm is not that strong. Your reach is not that long. You 
can't save yourself. Somebody else has to do the saving. And it's with this lesson, the fear of Pharaoh's violence. Note the irony. As a child, his family feared Pharaoh's violence on his behalf. Now, as a son of Pharaoh's own household, he fears Pharaoh's violence for himself. And he flees. Into the desert, into the land of Midian, where eventually, and we will hear that moving forward this week, he will have that life-changing encounter with the God of Israel. But note how he comes to that encounter as one who has to be rescued from the violence of a world that he can't change by himself. And we come back to Jesus' words. Don't flatter yourself that you're not as violent as those guys. Don't flatter yourself that you're not as wicked as those guys. Because it's really easy to learn that. Rather, understand that there is another way. And if that way was visible to the others, they'd be walking it even to this day. What about you? And the book of Exodus begins with Moses being challenged to learn a new way of walking. He flees Egypt. He flees Pharaoh. He flees that violence. On the one hand, because he's afraid. But on the other hand, he is fleeing in the direction of something that doesn't have to be that way. Note how the salvation of the people begins. I can't save myself. And the violent strength of the world can't save me either. If salvation and freedom and goodness are to be found, I have to leave those things. I have to step away from that world. And when I do so, then, and only then, am I really giving the Lord a chance to work. What a marvelous, marvelous reality that is. And we get to reflect on these things here when in just a couple minutes we're going to step forward and the Lord's going to place himself in our hands. The greatest treasure the universe has ever known, Jesus Christ, in your hand, in your mouth. Note who it is we receive. And note the question our gospel reading has left us with. How well do you appreciate it? How well do you appreciate me? Do you really value this gift? Because I tell you, there are those who are in fact more wicked than you, who if they had a chance at this, would become very different men and women. And so the question is, what about us? Amen.